Giving it 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to my show about sport beyond the boundary. Today, a really different version of 110%. We're going to be hearing about the great highs and the tragic lows of an Australian world champion skateboarder. This is from a documentary. The interview comes from Cassie McCullough on Radio National. And given that uh, Gary Gilmore has passed away, the former Australian all-rounder from the 1970s, we will feature an interview that journalist Frank Crook did with him in 1989. I hope you can stay with us. Yours to own on DVD. The untold story behind the greatest fraud in sporting history. What Lance never had was the truth, which is more powerful than the corrupt athlete. Said he was going to make my life a living hell. Hope rides again. The great God, the Jesus of cycling. The complete conspiracy revealed. You got a federal investigation shut down. Stop at nothing. The Lance Armstrong story. Available now at ABC Shops, Centres and online. Now, even if you don't know anything about skateboarding, you've probably heard of Tony Hawk. He's been the, the champion of the world many times over. But what you're about to hear is the story of two brothers, two Aussie boys from Victoria who took on the unbeatable Tony Hawk and won. This is the story of Tuss and Ben Pappas from the tough suburb of St Albans in Melbourne's northwest, self-confessed bogans with a gung-ho attitude who became world champions. All This Mayhem is a film that takes us up the vert and intimately documents Tass, Tass and Ben's story from their whirlwind success to the fall that would see one life end in tragedy and another left to struggle to make sense of it all. Mayhem is an understatement. Now, for all those skateboarding novices, if you don't know what a 900 is, you're about to find out. I spoke to Tuss earlier and I have to let you know there are a few instances of strong language in this conversation. Thanks for having me. Take us back to those really early days. You and your late brother Ben. Yeah. Skateboarding. When was the first time you picked up a skateboard? Can you remember? I remember my nan always had like a plastic little penny thing just in the backyard, like those real little skinny 70s things. And we used to, I just remember pushing around the backyard and when we were super, super young, like, I don't know, three, four. And then I didn't touch one for ages and then. My mum bought me a skateboard for my 12th birthday because I didn't know what I wanted. And then I saw one day at um, Paran, uh, Krishna Soy floating 10 foot above a ramp, just back-to-back massive airs. And it's ever since that day, me and Ben, you know, we were just mesmerised by the fact that you could fly. Sold from that Sold. moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. every kid wants to fly, so... So you guys, uh, you were kind of hanging out at the ramp and really a lot of freedom and I think you described it as a time where you could just chuck rocks at stuff and run around and, <laughs> and kick stuff in. Describe those days. Oh, we would just, just get out there and get amongst it, you know. Parents wouldn't see what you were up to, so just get up to some mischief. Yeah. <laughs> what everyone did for that time, I suppose. But then you and, and your brother Ben started to get good really good at skateboarding and you were practicing at this ramp where there weren't as many people around and you really started to hone your skills. Oh, that was, yeah, Northcote. Yeah, Northcote. Yeah, we started the Paran at the bottom and then when we started getting good, we were at Northcote. Right. And then one day a couple of Porsches were parked there. Yeah. And this is really the beginning of 
of a whole new life for you guys. Tell us what happened. Who were those guys? Uh, it was the Hill Brothers. They um, owned a distributorship called Hardcore, which is now Globe Shoes. And, um, yeah, they just saw me and Ben there battling, you know, bashing each other over who learned what, <laughs> fighting, skating, fighting, just, you know, two little bogans going at it. And we couldn't exactly quite skate yet. But they thought we were going to be good and they just said, do you want to come into hardcore, get some boards? Because we had crappy boards and couldn't afford to have any product. So they hooked us up. And so they gave you a lot of free stuff. They yeah. also sent you around the country on, on a tour. Yeah. At, yeah. That, at what age? 15. Ben would have been 12. So, yeah, we just ended up in a team van with the Alpha team with um, Dave Duncan, a friend of mine who he announces all the world uh, comps still and... Then we just got our taste of pro skateboarding from that point and just kept hammering forward. What was it like through your eyes then? Oh, I just realised how much I hated school after that <laughs> first tour. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just wanted to get to America and take over. You, you and Ben were fans of the film Platoon and um, you used to identify with two of the characters. Tell us about Barnesing. Oh, Barnes, yeah, he's just a maniac. Like, he just believes in the mission and will wants to get it completed at any cost with no emotion involved at all. And um, Elias, you know, yeah, he had more of a conscience. And so Barnesing it was just what we started calling Barnesing it is you just do it with, it, with no regard for yourself. You just, you better do it or die. Go over the top completely. Yeah, you either make it or just put yourself in hospital. You know? Right. And that happened quite a few times too. So you were you were Barnes and he was Elias. Yeah. No, but he'd Barnes it sometimes too. Like it was just the comment, Barnesing it. But yeah, but between us, yeah, he'd say I was more the Barnes and he was more the Elias. Did you have really uh, different styles? How how differently did you skate? Ben was more consistent, as in like he really had his stuff consistently wide and just everything was just flowy and perfect in his runs. Where I just wanted to go completely mental and just go higher and higher and try everything hard and either land it or die. So mm. just full maniac mode. Maniac <laughs> mode. So yeah. I guess for people who, who don't know much about skating, we're talking about that kind of horseshoe ramp where you go up and there's platforms on either side. Yeah, and... big half-pipe vert ramp. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Now, at the age of 16, you did something that I find absolutely amazing. You saved up enough money and you bought yourself a plane ticket and you went to the U.S., without a plan. Where, yeah. did, where did that come from? Oh, well, because Hardcore sent us there a few times, like once when I was 15 for a month and a half. And after that, I just realised the first two trips, it was either work out what you're going to do in Australia or just get your shit together and Cause get you guys to have the been, States. You've been watching these videos from the States and that was yeah. where the really, well, edgy skating was happening. It wasn't well, in Australia. Yeah, it's still sort of that way now. So, but yeah, when I was 17, I just saved up, got the ticket and just went to the States, threw away my return ticket and didn't come home until I was a professional. And, and you were camped out with Danny Way, uh, another great name. Yep. And no, he was a good mate. And, and you really honed your skills there and, and started to make, make your name. And then Ben came and joined you. Yeah. And in a way, two things happened. You guys were competing with each other edging each other on, but also the media was picking up on these two Aussie boys who were totally fearless and totally crazy. 
I would go that far. (laughs) (laughs) It looks that way, but we were just the same as anyone else at that time. But we were just, you know, we just wanted to do it. Mm. Yeah. And also around that time, um, there was something else happening. And and that was you guys pretty much experimenting with drugs. You'd already had a bit of a taste of that on the, on the pro scene. Yeah. But it wasn't until you were, you were in Tampa that things really took off. What, what kind of drugs were you taking? What happened was that when I got to Tampa, I'd, I'd snapped my femur just when I turned 18 at Woodward Skate Camp. I don't know, I'd, I'd smoked crack a couple of times and just wanted to try all this stuff because everyone just said, oh, if you do this, it's going to kill you. And I was like, well, let's see if it does. So... <laughs> I gave, yeah, I did that and then when I, my legs started working because I had a metal rod down my femur, I started skating but, you know, because when I was first there at 17, 18, I didn't know anything about nutrition or any of that. So my diet was really crap and I had no energy. I found when I took a trip or a couple of trips of acid, the first part of the acid, yeah, you get a bit speedy and because it's a very thinkative drug you start actually thinking you're better on it (laughs) so i'd film my whole video part on that so i'd get like two three hour session in filming and then two hours into it i'd find myself just spinning my wheel staring at my wheel for an hour straight (laughs) and then i'd look up and everyone's just looking at me tripping out and i'm just like oh i better disappear now but but you thought you felt like your performance was enhanced though yeah that's just because i was so run down so yeah, you know, when the energy kicked in, I thought, oh, this is great. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. But I found over the years, I always did everything better sober. But early experimenting, well, I suppose I had to do it to work that out, didn't I? Because I had it in my head, I could become superhuman. Yeah. Well, it's a tried and true path, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So eventually, you, you really climb up the ladder and... You and Ben are constantly in the top four along with Tony Hawk, the the legend, and uh, is it Tom Boyle? Yeah, Tom Boyle. Yeah. Yep. You're kind of all switching around, but eventually the time comes where you're going head-to-head with Tony Hawk. Yeah. You did an amazing performance and yeah. then cracked a rib. Yeah. Then the judges said, well... It's a it's a dead heat between you and Tony Hawk. Yeah. And you had to go back out there. And this is the stuff of legend. This is the kind of um, skateboarder's <laughs> war in a way. Um, tell us about that. Ah, I mean, I just slammed on a 720 and landed on my, yeah, my tailbone. And as I hunched my ribs downwards, the bottom rib popped over the top and cracked. And um, I just had to go again. So I just had to sort of hold my breath in a certain way so that the breathing wouldn't hurt the rib and just just suffer through the pain just for that that run and um yeah the judges came back and said I got it you know so <laughs> pretty happy yeah there's a moment in, in this film all this mayhem uh, were that and one of the extraordinary things about the film is that so much of your life has been documented you were part of the the 90s generation that where people lugged around those big video cameras but there is this moment where you're told that you are the world champion you have beaten Tony Hawk and you're the number one and you just don't believe it no I didn't believe it yeah because the way the judging goes you know judging can go either way. It always comes down to the judge's taste or who they're friends with. And But, yes, I couldn't believe it. 
on Life Matters, we're talking with Tuss Pappas, the former world champion skater, uh, and about a film that's been made of his life called All This Mayhem. Now, at this point where you've become world champion, your brother Ben is number two, Tony's been relegated to number three. It's this the high point. But behind the scenes, it's actually also the point where... Everything was about to go sour. The downhill begins. Yeah. And it actually begins with a confrontation between you and Tony, Tony Hawk and, and Ben. Yeah, I mean, I didn't look at it like a confrontation. We were just, you know, comp had just finished, had a few beers, pretty happy. And, I mean, it's in the doco. He came up, he had a whinge, you know, to us that he thinks he should have won. And, well, you know, Ben just stuck up for his brother and I just had to... I'm not going to let him look like the only dick. So just went on with it with him. But I just thought that was a bit weird. You know, if you're going to whinge to anyone, whinge to the judges. Mm. You know, it's not my fault. Yeah. You know, and so we just, you know, just did what two little bogans from St Albans would do. (laughs) Told him where to go. So in a way that was where a feud kind of began. But also you had trouble dealing with success in a way, didn't you? Was it? Well, now looking back, I had trouble because I had mental illness and I just didn't even know it yet. So, and that's why once we became world champions, we just weren't happy. I was just like, oh, okay, now what? I still feel like shit. Because you had the money, you had, well, loads of friends, girls and and drugs. And I think at one point you describe a a brick of cocaine. Yeah, nice little brick, Scraping off with a knife and waking up in the morning and just... Start with a good sniff, yeah. Yeah. But you weren't happy and, and you, you call that mental illness now. Oh, well, I've been diagnosed so, and I'm taking meds now. And Eventually, the drugs got a bit much. Ben decided to take some time out, go home. Yeah. You'd injured yourself and then you got a phone call. And, yeah, Ben's busted at Melbourne Airport. He was busted trying to import a few grams of, of yeah, cocaine. Uh, roughly three ounces of coke, yeah. Mm. And that meant his career was effectively over because he wouldn't yeah. be allowed back into the United States. Yeah, and we just we just um, had our falling out with XYZ and Danny Way and Tommy. and So things were really falling apart because the company had lost money. Now Ben was gone. Yeah. You were kind of shattered. Yeah, no sponsors, this, that. And so I started trying the 900 thinking if I got that first, that could get me back onto a good team, make some money again and try to use that to get Ben back over to the States because we had no money. But, um, yeah, that just didn't seem to work out either. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. G- give yourself a, a <laughs> break. I mean, tell us what the 900 is. Uh, back then it was the first big, big spin move. It's basically you go up forwards and you spin uh, two and a half, three sixties. To 900 and then come down the land. <laughs> and no one had done it? No, no one had done it. And you were working away at I doing was landing it. on it and rolling to the flat and then I was thinking to do it at um, the 99X Games. And you and, thought um, this would be the way back? This this yeah, because if you did it on such a big place, yeah, it's a big platform, media to the world and that could, you know, maybe get my family back together and... Yeah, I get to the X Games and I'm not allowed to do it and then, what do you know, Hawk's trying it and... Yeah, his mate was shooting sequences of it, Grant Britain, and then I got word that they were at Transworld studying my sequences. Hawk was there looking at my sequences, and then 
Yeah. Mm. For the first time ever, I wasn't allowed in a best trick contest because I was always in best trick contests and then I just realised, you know, what I was up against. So basically Tony Hawk attempted it and eventually succeeded. No, nah, and I give him credit for that. It's still an amazing feat that he did it first. I just didn't like the, But everyone um, said that if you'd been there, you had a, as equal chance to do it as well. Yeah. But you, had, you weren't allowed. I wasn't allowed, no. Around this time, you've also, you've got a partner, Colleen, and two children yeah. uh, in, in the States, but you land in jail there. Yeah. Tell us how that happened. Well, I crushed a vertebrae in my back and then my legs just went sort of um, almost atrophy, like really skinny because I had to just rest because of my back. And then um, my sponsor told me if you don't make the circuit next year, you're just not going to get paid. And I didn't have any education. I've never really had a job, nothing that could, you know, handle our overhead. So I just called up uh, one of my colourful mates and then got a... Um, big bag of steroids and I just went straight to the gym and just started shooting roids and just training and just got strong within three months. So I made the circuit. But what happened was the roids just really exasperated all my um, drug psychosis I already suffered from and I didn't realise that I was mentally ill and had psychosis from drugs and yeah, I just ended up, you know, got off that and having mad fights with her because I was always on the road and then... um, you know, she's like, you better go to the doctors. And so it took years to try find meds that worked and they had me on like Xanax and this and that. And and then when I'd um, be away, if I got injured, because I had no sponsors, I had to make money off the circuit, I'd just sniff a little bit of um, crystal meth or ice if I broke ribs because I was always doing ribs or tweaking knees. So I'd just sniff a little bit of um, tiny bits of meth or ice and um, it would completely numb my body. I wouldn't feel a thing. So I'd get through the competitions and come home with the paycheck. So I'd be able to support the family, but I just felt like I was on drugs anyway. So why not just keep the party going? And then, um, yeah, just one time I just did, we just got into a mad fight and I was just all blacked out from the zannies and the meth and the roids had really sent me over the edge. And yeah, I, you know, one thing led to another. I hit her and I got locked up and something, you know, I'm ashamed of. If someone touched my daughter, I want to kill him. So next thing you know, I was that guy and I was locked up and I just couldn't believe it. But then um, mm. I got out of jail and we're working it out. And then of all things, you know, I crashed my car because of these pills the doctors had me on. Like they said, I'll just take these. And I sort of passed out of the wheel and just crashed my car. And then I drove the car back and the cops drove past and saw the car, then boom, I'm back in jail. Then Homeland Security comes and goes, well, you hit, you know, you hit your, your girl, can't believe we let you out the first time, you're getting deported. And we were working it out, you know, because like, she knew something wasn't right with me mentally. And um, after that I went to jail and then we got news of what happened with Ben because, you know, Ben had the same mental stuff as me and... Next thing you know, he's in his mess with, you know, Lynette. Mm. It was a big, ugly mess. Well, your life was what you thought was at the lowest and then it impossibly got even even worse. Tell us about Ben and the end of Ben's life. Well, the thing with Ben was he'd call me up, right, and he'd be like, one call, he called me up and he goes, Tuss, I'm so shamed. You know, I go, what, why, what? You know, he goes, oh, you're not going to believe it. So I'm just making light of it. I'm like, you got caught in bed with a man. 
right? And he's like, nah, nah, it's worse than that. I said, then what could be worse, you know, if you're going to be embarrassed? You know? And it is just like, Lynette's a hooker. And I just went, oh, man, because I knew we loved her and he didn't know for a year that, you know, that's what she was doing. And they were both on heroin and he was just so ashamed, you know, just felt so bad. So he stuck it out with her and she was trying to quit, but they were both on heroin and they were both on ice and... Like he was on three or four different antidepressants. Um, he's on Xanax. He's shooting ice, shooting heroin, and and then um, yeah, he had been this this uh, second in the world. Yeah, champion. Yeah, he got on the heroin you. after. Yeah, and then after he got to he and couldn't then, come back. He got on the, all the hard drugs and because he was depressed and. So basically, to cut a long story short, he got completely fried on the drugs. He kept telling his, you know, doctor that, you know, I'm having these visions and of, you know, murder and killing myself. And next thing you know, he's done what he's done. And then when he's come out of his drug haze, he's gone and knocked himself. And so, so what happened for people who don't know? Is um, he, he 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 killed his girlfriend and then killed himself. In a few days later. Yeah, on. once he came out of his drug haze. And, I mean, it's all in the, the final judge's findings. She said that, like, he should have been, like, he kept telling the doctor, you know, that should have been put in the nut ward as soon as he told him I'm having these visions. Because them drugs, they'll, they'll, they'll warp you, turn you into someone else. And in the docker, you can see that he didn't look like the same bloke in the end. That's the part of the docker that really kills me every time, you know, mm. looking at my brother... Just looks like someone else. Yeah, almost, he's gaunt and grey and, yeah, and just, sad. And, and sad and just looked almost soulless. Mm, mm. You know, so... Well, after your brother's descent in, into what must have been a hell, you also, I mean, you were like twins in a way. You you, you just were so close. Oh, we'd, uh, yeah, we'd fight a lot like crazy, but we just had each other's back. Mm. You know, when, when we got back together, it was always cool, but mm. he was under the impression I just forgot him. Mm. and just stayed in the States. But I had to support two kids there. Mm. And, um, you know, he was told by certain family members that me, you know, me and my dad didn't love him and this and that, and I'm just on the phone just going, you're tripping, man. I've got two kids to look after. And so there's a lot of unresolved stuff there, which mm. kills me to this day. Yeah. And you went into a, a bit of a spiral yourself. Yeah, once. And, and then you you ended up in jail in Australia. Tell Tell us how that happened. Uh, well, then after Ben died, I just didn't give a shit anymore. Like, I'd been deported, lost my kids. Colleen had just completely cut me from even talking to him. Dad had died. So I just, in my big drug haze, you know, because I was just shooting speed and ice and eating zannies like lollies and, um, yeah, jumped on a plane to South America and picked up a kilo of Coke and put myself into rehab. <laughs> For three years straight. Like, courtesy of the uh, correctional services. Courtesy of Sydney Correctional, <laughs> yeah. So you tried to import some cocaine yeah. in a, a fairly hopeless attempt, oh, I think you'd probably say yourself. Actually, it was actually top notch. Oh, was it? <laughs> for me to make it from South America. In the conditions. Even, even to Sydney through <laughs> Auckland in the condition I was in. Yeah. That was, well, that's God. Mm. I, mean, I fully believe God just walked me through all those problems to get me into jail. And in that cell? In that cell. For three years. To read his word and just look at my life and realise I want to talk to crew now, like younger crew if they're stuffing up. And and you came to terms with the loss of your brother? 
Yeah, I mean, it still hurts. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it shatters the shit out of me. But what can I do? I think people will be relieved to know that your life is now so happy. On the 12th of December 2012, you walked out of jail. Yep. You now have a beautiful partner, Helen, yep. and a beautiful son, Billy. Billy. Billy Ben, after my dad and my brother. Mm. Yeah. And you made the 900. Yeah, I finally got it. <laughs> Pretty funny after all of that. Yeah, it's just blessing after blessing. I'm just happy now. But, you know, it's still, a, yeah, I'm not going to lie, it's still a battle. You know, you're still you. You just got to watch your triggers and try to just try to be good. It's hard to be good. <laughs> well, Tuss Pappas, you're a legend in many ways, not least of all because of the last part of that story you just told us. Thank you so much for telling it and with such honesty. Oh, thank you. That's Tuss Pappas. Giving it 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Well, the Australian cricketing world was saddened with the news of the passing of all-rounder Gary Gilmore at the age of 62. Gary Gilmore was uh, an interesting guy. He had that incredible performance against England during the first ever World Cup. It was the semi-final at Headingley when he took six for 14 he also played 15 test matches, took 54 test wickets at 26, and uh, he hit a test century against New Zealand in 1977 that included 20 boundaries and won six. He also teamed up in that match with Doug Walters, who went on to score 250. So he was a player of enormous talent and perhaps unfulfilled potential. Way back in 1989, journalist Frank Crook caught up with Gary Gilmore and here is some of that conversation. Yeah, that was probably one thing that was going for me, that I could bat a little bit. I thought I could bat a little bit anyway. Well, but, I think uh, you could bat like fairly the, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but like the names you mentioned, like you could throw in there, um, Jeff Hurst was another one. Alan Hurst, sorry. For Alan me. Hurst, yeah. You know, soccer players mixed up there. Um, Alan Hurst, um, Tony Dell was around at that time. Um, Australia, yeah. was, as you said, was quite embarrassed for for fast bowlers at that stage, and uh, I was lucky to um, have another string to the bow. Yeah, yeah, it's very handy, isn't it? I mean, uh, I've always thought that Australian cricket is always strong when we've got a good all-rounder in the side. Yeah, well, um, you looked like after when I, when I was finished, um, and like myself and Max Walker, we always thought ourselves as all-rounders, and, and like we were always fighting for that last position on the team. Yeah, well, it was a nice, nice choice to have, wasn't it, for the selectors? Yeah, it, it has been, and um, now, now Steve Waugh's come up, and um, Australia's firing again. Yeah, that's good to see, isn't it? Gary, did you model yourself on any particular player when you were a young fella? Not really. No, it's um, like sport in those days is a bit different to today. Like, I, like we didn't start playing competition sport till we were twelve or something in that, and back in the seventies, I'd say, and. Um, you just picked up things as you go, and like everyone, everyone was saying, I modelled myself off this person, that person, and um, admittedly, some people in, some people did help me along the way, but I've never, I never set out to model myself off uh, anyone in particular. I suppose a lot of people today would say that starting out at twelve is uh, is pretty late in life. Well, I, I think that's that's probably a problem with sport at present. Uh, I know my young kids have been playing cricket for a couple of years and they're only eight now and they've been playing soccer since, since they've been six and um, 
I don't know what's going to happen to them by the time they reach 14 or 15, whether they'll be sick of it or not. Um, yeah, that's a danger, isn't when, it? Uh, yeah, it is, and um, I think that's the problem with with competitive sport today. Like, the kids are starting too, too young and leaving it too early. Do your boys uh, surf at all? Yeah, they, they try everything. They're into cricket, they're into basketball, they're into surfing, they're into soccer. Um, there's not enough days in the week, but whether they keep it up for a period of time, that's um, entirely up to them. What about yourself when you were young? Were you a bit like that, that you uh, played a lot of different sports? Yeah, there weren't that many sports around. Um, I remember I used to play tennis, I used to play cricket, I used to play rugby league, and that was it. Um, the beach never attracted me at that age, um, so I, I didn't fall for the surfboard in my in my teens, but um, I, I tried most sports. Where, where did you learn your cricket originally? In Newcastle. I, um, I started playing under-12s, um, and mainly through school, and an old gentleman up in Newcastle who's, who's since passed away, um, like one name of Jack Finlay, who was probably the the master of all junior cricket in those days, took took me aside and um, showed a lot of interest in me, and I um, I responded to what to his encouragement, sort of thing, and kept on with the game, and that was the only game that I really kept on with. Giving it one hundred and ten percent with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Gary Gilmore there. Look, that's your lot for today. Don't forget, you can find us at uh, the ABC Grandstand website. Uh, You can also find us on iTunes. Just search 110% with Barry Nichols. You'll find this episode, but also many others. Thanks, as always, for your company, and I'll talk to you next time. Barry Nichols, giving it 110% on Grandstand Digital. Extra, 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 extra.